calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and today I'm joined on the show by Mac Blackie. Mac is a serial entrepreneur who started, scaled, and sold no less than six companies, every one of which was either seven or eight figures. He's currently an angel investor in over 50 companies and is the proud owner of the Spanish soccer team, Al Jazeera's Football Club, where he's talking to us from today. I think it's fair to say that you can attribute his level of success to something more than luck. So it's my goal today to figure out the secret of that success and learn how we can apply it as both entrepreneurs and investors ourselves. Welcome to the show, Mac. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Mac, aside from your current venture with Al Jazeera, it's clear that sports are important to you as a handful of your startups were in this space. Not all of them, though. Uh, Can you please give us a quick history of these companies and exits that you had between 95 and, and 2018? Sure. Well, as I think about my background, there really are two pretty big buckets. And bucket number one was soccer. It was kind of my life passion. I started playing at a really young age. I think I was four or five years old when my dad took me to a YMCA. And I, and I really fell in love with the game. And I grew up in an area where baseball and American football were certainly much more popular. So I was kind of a, an outlier in my passion for the sport. But it really defined all of my goals and dreams as I was growing up, everything I thought about was playing in college and being a professional and being an All-American. And that's kind of how I thought about my, my life. And so thankfully, as I sort of grew, I checked off a lot of my, my goals that were soccer related. And when I started my very first company, which was a Web1 company, right after Netscape launched the commercial web browser, I started my first internet company. So the first quarter of 1995, I had just finished playing professional soccer and saw this internet kind of wave, or I guess it was not really a wave yet. It was a little uh, trickle, but we believed there was going to be a big opportunity. And so I started my very first company in that space, but because of my passion, I always had this eye towards, can I work with soccer brands? Can I find soccer companies that need to be on the internet? So even with that very first company, which was a technology business, some of my first clients were soccer organizations and some of my network was taking advantage of that, you know, kind of soccer background. So really long story short, you know, from that moment on over the next, you know, 25, 26 years, every time I had an opportunity to kind of go back into soccer or sports, but it was, it was generally soccer related. I kept doing that. And I, like a lot of entrepreneurs, I was looking for problems to solve, things that bugged me as a soccer fan or when my daughters were born, when I was a coach or when I was a soccer parent. All of those things really kept bubbling up into things I wanted to work on. So, um, so yeah, soccer and sports was, was a big part of my youth, but also has been a, an ongoing part of my businesses. Great. Well, let's start with your philosophy for building a business from the inside. And I, and I want to get later to kind of how you view the world uh, as an angel investor now. But when you were when you're in the trenches, the early trenches there, 
Now, one thing you said to me, we, we chatted the other day and, and you said something that is sacrilege among keepers of the financial models on these, uh, listening to these calls is that EBITDA doesn't matter. So, so what did you mean by that? <laughs> and if not EBITDA, then what does matter to building a valuable business? Yeah. So I, I, I am very opinionated in the belief that I wouldn't say that EBITDA doesn't matter or financials don't matter. I believe philosophically there are things that are as important, if not more important. And those tend to be very strategic things that we as entrepreneurs kind of build into our business. It's, you know, proprietary products that we create or intellectual property that we secure or a unique distribution model to take our ideas to market. And philosophically, the reason that lines up, in my opinion, is generally companies that are generating a lot of EBITDA are doing one of those things really well. They've created something proprietary or something powerful, which is what drives the financial performance. But when it comes time to sell a business or think about who would really value what you've created as an entrepreneur, my sort of mind always goes back to what is that strategic thing? So after I sold my sixth company, which was in September, October, 2018, I was standing up on a stage full of entrepreneurs and I made a kind of a bold statement that I didn't realize was bold or controversial at the time, which is that I had never sold one of my companies based on a financial metric. Because in every scenario, looking back, I believe that we had created something valuable but as importantly, we found buyers or prospective buyers out in the world that really needed what we had created. And so that alignment of strategic value that you've created and buyers that really need that, whether they want to enter your market, whether they want to own your product or service or have your exclusive distribution channel, that alignment to me is what creates maximum value. So that's one of the things that I, I, I sort of fell into early in my career and it just really stayed with me. It's something that I tried to build into every company, certainly led to some of my best exits. And then now as I sort of mentor and share things with other entrepreneurs, that's been you know one of my, my big rallying cries. So you're really thinking about that early on in the, in the first half, you know, rather than coming around to it at the end. So how does that perspective sort of help frame your decision-making day-to-day in the business? Like what, what, what do you do differently from that? Yeah, I think it's it's a really good point. I, I do believe that the earlier you start thinking about some of these things, the more value they create over time. Certainly, they can lead to better exit opportunities, you know, people that are, are interested in what you've created. But I also think it just helps you build a better business. When you ask the questions very early on in the life cycle of a business, would a prospective buyer like what we're doing? Would they like this new product that we're launching? Would they like this agreement we're signing? And anytime the answer isn't yes or a screaming yes, to me, it's an opportunity to really optimize something. Far too often, you know, entrepreneurs are building a good business. Maybe they're solving a problem that was important to them or they find an opportunity, but they haven't really created anything proprietary or exclusive. And inevitably, competition comes in and what was a great idea and created a great company, suddenly someone else that has maybe more resources or bigger distribution or you know more capital on the balance sheet can just come in and outspend or out invest in your business. And I, I was actually talking to uh, 
someone, an entrepreneur last week that was trying to start thinking about exits and they have a great business, but the barrier to entry, in my opinion, is very low. They haven't really created any strategic things that are proprietary and block other people. So I fear that now that they're getting serious about exits, they haven't taken the time to really think about how do they create a moat around their business? How do they do things that really you know give them competitive advantage? So I love the alignment that the earlier you think about exit options, doesn't mean you have to sell. It just means you're really using that as a lens to look at your business to make better decisions. Only one of which uh, might be deciding to sell it. But everything else, raising capital, selling a minority position, bringing on strategic partners, they all follow a very similar kind of transaction model. So I believe if you think about the ultimate exit of selling 100% of your company to the perfect buyer, all those other things are kind of subsets of that. And the earlier you start, just like investments, they compound over time. So start early, let those things compound into value. Mac, as you reflect back on on the last 25 plus 30 years, say, uh, what stands out to you as, as your biggest triumph over that period and, and your biggest, let's call it, uh, learning opportunity? Yeah, so I would say um, you've probably gone through similar things with many years in, in sort of the financial world. People used to always talk about black swan events and these like unpredictable, crazy things that happen. And if you've been in business long enough, I'm pretty much confident there's going to be a black swan event every other year now. So I went through, you know, the financial crisis and the dot com bubble bursting and global pandemics. And there's always some black swan event. And for me, one of the early ones was the dot com bubble bursting in March of 2000. I had a term sheet in my hand for a $15 million venture capital investment out of a blue chip firm in New York. And about a week later, the NASDAQ just sort of crashed and burned. And so the world was literally falling apart. And we had about two weeks of payroll left because we were so close to closing around. We weren't worried about cash. We knew we had investors lined up. And so our ability to go from that moment, which was two weeks of payroll, the world is crashing. And then we ended up selling the company. I ended up in July of 2000 for, you know, 15 million plus to an international buyer it was just an incredible pivot and navigation of chaos. And so that to me, that whole sort of series stands out as one of my favorite moments because it would have been so easy and really understandable to everyone around us to be like, oh, well, you know, the, the bubble burst. And so, of course, everything went under. We turned it into a really positive exit. And so that was probably the best triumph. And then from a learning perspective, yeah, one of the worst things that ever happened to me in my in my life, really business, personal, is I, I had a business partner that I broke some of my own rules. And my own rules generally around gut feelings and everything being aligned culturally and professionally and morally and ethically and all those things that I really felt strongly about. I had this opportunity to bring on a partner who was incredibly bright and very successful. And all those little internal flags had gone up that like maybe we weren't aligned on some things culturally and maybe, but he's so smart and he's going to really take our business to another level. And, you know, sure enough, fast forward a year later, went through litigation, which I had never been through any kind of business litigation. I didn't even know how the process worked. 
and it was a really eye-opening, very painful experience. We ended up winning because we knew we hadn't done anything wrong, but this individual tried to take myself and my other partner and my mentor, all of us kind of down with this lawsuit. And it was such a, a hard process and a, you know, I don't know, I became very pessimistic about people because it's like, I thought he was a friend. I thought he was a business partner. He really tried to hurt us and winning in court cost me, you know, seven figures, a lifetime of money to defend myself and ultimately win, but you don't win anything. You know, you just sort of win. Like I was right. Yeah. There's no winners in court. There's no winners. Yeah. And I, and I naively didn't understand. I felt very early I had, you know, documents and witnesses and proof. I thought the minute this happened, it was like, okay, this is ridiculous. I'll walk in next Monday and hand them proof and this will be over seven figures in a year later, you know, we're finally dealing with it. And so long winded story, you know, my, my really validated how important it is to be aligned with people you, that are in your life that you do business with, not just on a pure business front, but again, morals, ethics, culture, you know, what you hold true has to be in alignment or it's just a recipe for disaster. And so ever since that moment, you know, all of my partnerships have go through a very rigorous, like, are we on the same page about life well before we get into documents? Yeah, I'm curious about that. What, what does that look like? How do, you do, how do you assess somebody's moral compass, their values, their, their alignment? How, what, what, how do you do that? Well, I think one for me is, is listening to my gut, you know, like when the, it was literally the one time I had had the little internal flags going up and I was honestly just being greedy. I just thought it was a person that could really help me and my business, you know, make more money. And I thought, all right, I'm sure it'll be fine. And I kind of went against my gut. So the gut to me is a powerful signal. And then the other is a, a lot of things that you can do. One is I tend to work with people in a collaboration well before we would ever become partners of any kind. So we test things out, you know, in a joint venture that has no legal ramifications. Let's just see how we work together and try to put ourselves in situations that aren't just positive. What do we do when something negative happens? And then the other is truly legal. And I think this is just smart, probably 101. I just learned it the hard way, which is, you know, imagining how you deal with differences and frustrations. You know, what's the buy-sell agreement? What's the voting structure? Who controls the equity? Who's on the board? Those kind of things to me were not as important before that moment as after. And now, I mean, they're everything to me. Like even when I trust someone, because I only do business with people I like and trust, I'm very fortunate that I can pick and choose where, where I work and spend time these days. But um, I still want the documents to memorialize what I think we've agreed to as humans. Like if we've agreed to handling something with a transparent approach and being very honest, I want the legal documents to address how we do those things. And so I've been very intentional about memorializing what I'm feeling personally with the documentation behind it. So if we if we pivot now and have a look at your role as an angel investor, it's obviously it's a different type of a, of a world for you to be inhabiting when you're not the operator. So I'm curious what makes a potential investee stand out to you as an investor? Well, I think a lot of the obvious things that that I know you as a professional and a lot of your listeners would do, but I am still a, a big believer in, you know, you bet the jockey. And so even if you have a great business model, great idea, great market, all those things, it really comes down to people at the end of the day. So whoever the 
the primary founder and entrepreneur is has to really impress me as kind of an outlier in all the ways that I care about. And some of those are, of course, they're smart and that they're a domain expert for whatever they're trying to achieve, but also those, you know, alignment around culture and morals and ethics and things that, you know, when inevitably something bad happens, how are they going to handle firing people? How are they going to handle, you know, the capital dries up? I mean, what are, what are their, you know, it's a, a lot of the questions I ask founders are kind of rolling the tape forward. And when the series seed runs out and you have two weeks of payroll, like what's the conversation with the team? What are you communicating to the board? What do you tell me as an investor? Just to see how people imagine um, navigating through some of those challenging things, because I believe they're all coming. It's just a question of when, and I'm a very optimistic person. I don't assume the worst, but I know that the reality of my, or my view of real, reality for startups is your ability to nav navigate chaos is one of the biggest predictors of success because it is coming. It's your market, finance, operations, humans, something in your business will be throwing curveballs, your ability to navigate through that really has a big uh, impact on the kind of success you can create. So I'm trying to get a sense of that best I can. So people is one, you know, big markets, another. And then for me, just because we talked about it early on, is there something proprietary, unique, protectable that says, if we are successful, we can kind of block other people and create real value. If I don't see some of those things, even if I like the entrepreneur or I like the market, it's usually a pass for me. Can AI do it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and that's a new question to ask, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, just looking at that environment right now, obviously that's changed a lot in the last couple of years for for private equity with US Treasuries now in kind of four or five percent range. Like what are you seeing out there in terms of deal flow, valuations, opportunities? Yeah, I would say for me personally, you know, our our um, our family is probably, you know, dialed back on some of our investments, not because of any macro thing as much as, you know, leaning into the, the team we purchased and some other things that we're really excited about. I have always considered myself a better active investor and steward of, you know, my own capital than a passive uh, picker of businesses. So, you know, when I'm excited about something and I can partner with someone, those are the things that I tend to lean into. You know, right now, I, I do think some of the technology innovations that are coming out that are about lifestyle improvement, you know, right now, I think you and I spoke about this, I'm very passionate about kind of optimizing for life, you know, travel, time with family, things that matter to me. And so I'm still really looking at ways to make my life better and where technology can, you know, make it more efficient so I can spend more time doing the things I love. So those, those type investments still land well with me. AI is kind of a new chapter for that. I'm still wrapping my head around some of those, but anything that, that allows me, or I, I often say Americans, because sadly, I think disproportionately Americans that, you know, have are spending more time working than, than, you know, holidays with family. If we can find things that create efficiency, those are always interesting to me. And I tend to still look at those because I think they'll be very disruptive. That's great. And I, I definitely want to talk a bit about that life-work balance question in a second here. I, I do want to get to the Al Jazeera's football club before we go, before we move on to that. 
I imagine our listeners will have undoubtedly drawn parallels in this conversation with Ryan Reynolds, a good good Vancouver boy. I'll, I'll throw the plug in there. And uh, Rob McKelleny, however you say his name, McKelleny's purchase of Wrexham in Wales there. So I wonder if you could just talk a bit second about what your macro thesis is on these teams and uh, and what the upside looks like. Yeah, it, no, it is funny. The timing with, uh, we, we've been working on this for a while. You know, I lived in Barcelona with my family back in 2014 and the early seeds of, of this idea kind of started brewing in my mind. But the macro thesis for me really started about three or four years ago when we started really looking at some of the second, third, fourth division teams in major markets like Spain, where we ultimately purchased, you know, we wanted a club that was in one of the countries that could promote to one of the top leagues in the world. So in my opinion, there are five leagues in the world that kind of are the best. We would certainly want a team that was able to promote up to one of those divisions or one of those leagues that eliminates a lot of the world because of the system of promotion and relegation outside the United States, it is really an opportunity to find a lower division team, improve it, optimize it, and have the possibility of getting promoted. And with promotion, it's not just, you know, glory and trophies. It is, you know, multi, multi-million dollar TV contracts, you know, lots of real financial opportunities. And so what we found after digging in kind of deep diligence on some of these is clubs like the one we purchased, which is 114 years old, incredible history, local monopoly, you know, 75% of the seats were held by season members. I mean, so it's got this really loyal following, but it was also not run as a business. It was run by passionate people, but it wasn't run like a business. They weren't using KPIs. They didn't have fiscal discipline. They didn't have a good balance sheet. They had a lot of debt. And so our view was if we buy the right club or series of clubs and we really think about it as a business, I already have the passion for the sport. So that you couldn't pull that out of me if you tried. So that passion was already there, but we really want to run it like a business. And so that was a big part of it for us. We also wanted a place in the world where Americans would want to spend time because travel and tourism, particularly around you know soccer immersion, is something I had done in a previous company. We were the largest partner of FC Barcelona in the U.S. and we're taking about a thousand Americans a year to Barcelona to really experience soccer uh, in that city, the culture, the food, the people, uh, the sport. And so I saw all, all of those as opportunities. So unlike Wrexham, which is a place that most people never would want to spend time, we picked a beautiful coastal location in southern Spain that even if you weren't a soccer fan, you would be very happy sitting on the beach looking at Morocco across the water and enjoying the Costa del Sol. So those are some of the things that we really looked at and then we, we found the right opportunity in Algeciras. I, I can hear the uh, Welsh letters being written as we speak here, Mac. <laughs> Hey, I mean, I, I, there's plenty to be jealous about uh, with, with Wrexham. I mean, they're doing some amazing things, but I, I think their location is at top of that list. So uh, so who are the natural buyers then? Where, where does this go? You know, it's interesting because, it, you know, unlike a lot of the things I've done where, of course, I've, I've sold most of my companies, you know, this is one that I feel very strongly that I could run for the rest of my life. Um, it's something I'm really passionate about. But the reality is, 
I believe that what is about to happen in the United States in our buildup to the World Cup, which will be held here in just a few years, there's three of the largest soccer events on earth are going to be held in the United States in back-to-back years. And I believe the amount of money and resources and enthusiasm that you will see pour into the global sport of soccer is like nothing we've ever seen before. And that means large private equity firms, you know, large family offices, and people that have an interest in buying premium assets but don't have the interest in doing what we're in the middle of doing right now, which is buying a club that needs to be, you know, boots on the ground, you know, elbow grease improvements. Once we prove that out, I think there's a lot of very logical buyers that would love everything that we've we've discovered, but they probably wouldn't want to do some of the operational work that we're going to have to do to get it there. So I, I did want to circle back to that idea of your personal philosophy around work and uh, and and the, the balance with, with your the rest of your life, even when you're doing something as onerous as building a company from scratch. So can you talk a bit about, um, you call it life wealth, but just this general idea of, of finding that balance and how, how that's happened in your life? Yeah, it, it's really important to me, and it's it all dates back. So in my 20s, I was incredibly fortunate. We talked about my first company in 1995. I sold that business in 1998. The second business that I mentioned, uh, kind of one of my you know triumphs, if, if you will, I sold in July of 2000. So I had two eight-figure exits in my 20s, you know, and by all measures, um, I was, you know, quote, successful. But something really interesting was about to happen. My wife and I were expecting our first daughter, uh, first baby, which uh, her due date was August of 2000. And I realized that although I had been successful by, you know, most kind of standard measures, you know, financially, I had also spent the last, you know, five years working seven days a week, sleeping on the floor in my office, not sleeping much at night, you know, just really working a hundred miles per hour. And I had this kind of moment of almost like crisis to think, you know, how can I be the kind of father that I want to be to this soon to be born baby when I don't know how to do anything but work all the time. And so I made this, this kind of promise to my wife and my soon to be born daughter that I was going to be there for every moment. You know, in my mind, I was going to be home for dinner. I was going to carve the you know pumpkin at Halloween and coach the soccer team. And I was just going to be there because my own, you know, father, I have a really good relationship with my parents. My father was a you know third shift engineer when I was getting started and he had to work to put our family in a good position. So it was difficult for him, given his schedule, to be at everything, which was very typical for dads, you know, and, and sort of that era. And so long story short, I made that commitment. And as I think I was telling you the other day, I really honestly didn't know what that was going to mean. You know, I knew that I was committing to be there. But from that moment on, I pretty much just started leaving the office at 445 in the afternoon. I'd stand up in the middle of the meeting and and walk out of the office. And initially, I think my teammates and co-founders thought I had lost my mind. But ultimately, what happened is, you know, I dropped that little girl all for her freshman year at NYU 19 years later. And over those 19 years, I built and sold four more companies, but I was home for dinner every night at five and I carved every pumpkin and went to every play. And so I made such a strong commitment to not accepting 
that trade-off that everyone around me told me, you could either be an entrepreneur that scales companies or you can be a very active dad. You just can't do both. And I, and I refuse to accept that. And so, you know, we moved abroad. I pulled my daughters out of school and traveled the world all while building companies. And so I know it's possible. And so it's become a really, really big part of kind of what I teach and help people with as founders and entrepreneurs. That's really inspiring to me, Mac. And, and I think it's a great challenge to the status quo. So that's, that's awesome sort of message for our listeners. I think that, it, that you can do it if you just need to sort of challenge that for yourself. So I, we're, we're coming to the end of our conversation today. Unfortunately, Mac, I, I have one final question for you and it's kind of doesn't really apply, but maybe uh, usually we ask about folks who had their first job in their industry, but uh, think back to your kind of your first major job or maybe your startup. And if you could take yourself for coffee on your first day of, of, of that business, what, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? Yeah, what a, what a good question. You know, I believe all the way back to the very beginning that the real opportunities in life come when you bet on yourself, you, you know, you believe in yourself, you bet on yourself and you take risk. I mean, you, there's been so many points in life where I have stared at a, I could do the safe thing. I sold my company. They're offering me a big salary. They're offering me all these, you know, safe things to do. Or I can resign, watch my salary go to zero, put everything at risk and roll it into the next thing. And then again and again and again, not that I didn't make mistakes, I have made millions, but every time I took the risk and bet on myself, I was happy I did it. Because worst case, I learned something incredibly valuable I could apply the next time, what some people would call failure. To me, it was a learning experience. So I believe taking risk is one of the you know, calculated risks is one of the best things that you can do in your life and career. I've been speaking today with Mac Lackey, serial entrepreneur, investor, and public speaker. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Mac. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Before I sign off, I'd like to take a second to ask that if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and share it. Those little stars help the show reach more people, and we'd love to keep growing it. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets. Guiding Assets.